Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Mancunian chef Simon Wood. Manchester has stuck together the only way that Manchester does, to be honest. I don't see that with any other city, and people there might argue, but if they do it, they don't do it as good as we do. Six years ago, Simon won MasterChef, and since then, he's not looked back. He went from data management to chef and founder of the Wood Restaurant Group, which specialises in relaxed fine dining. During lockdown, he taught people how to cook on social media and he was one of the very early adopters of takeaway fine dining kits. Actually, I think he was the first. And like many others in hospitality, he helped out during lockdown, doing lots of great work for food banks. We recorded this episode a few days before April the 12th, 2021, the date restaurants like Simon's opened up to the public in the roadmap out of the COVID restrictions. I was eager to see how he'd held it all together over the past few months. You're going to hear how drive and passion can get you through anything. And with Simon, what you see is what you get, like a true mank. Simon, welcome to We Built This City. Thank you very much for having me, Lisa. Now, I know you're up to your eyes at the moment because we're a couple of days ahead of opening on the 12th of April, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So it's an exciting time. You're a great Mancunian. You were born in Chadderton in Oldham and set up wood at First Street in Manchester in 2017. And it had an immediate impact on Manchester. It's one of my favourite restaurants. And I was glad to be able to sneak in and between lockdown periods, that was great. So immediately you recognise the 2020 edition of the Michelin Guide in Britain and Ireland. So amazing achievement. And I read that you started cooking as soon as you could reach the oven. Yeah. So I was interested to know who helped you to reach the oven in the first place? Who was behind you to start you off cooking? It's my grandma. I used to go to my grandma's on um, a Saturday to give my mum and dad some peace, I would have thought. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's where I kind of realised that there's more to food than like home life was great, but it was like, you know, fish fingers, chips and peas and then Finder's crispy pancakes and chippy on a Friday and, you know, all kinds of different things that people of my age grew up having. Mm. But when I went to grandma's, we got, my mum always kills me for saying that because she's like, that's not all I gave you, but it's what I remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when I went to my grandma's, that's where I saw different kinds of ingredients. So things like rabbit and tripe and cow heel and all the different old school, if you like, bits of ingredients that showed me there was more to to life than the things that I just discussed so it kind of like whetted my appetite for food all the way back then in the like early 80s it reminded me my grandma used to have tribe and she was an amazing baker in particular and her house used to smell of of cakes and scones and lemon curds we used to go around lemon curd tarts I ran away from home once. She lived quite near to us, actually, in Salford, and ran away. My dad found me at her house on a chair at the worktop with covered in flour baking. So that yeah. was, you know, nuns are quite important, aren't they, in that respect? Yeah, yeah. So. And it's funny, isn't it? Because, like, back then, everyone's grandma or nan, they always baked, no matter what. You always went round and there was always something baking, whether it be, like, yeah. scones or when they get pastry and fill it with sultanas and then fold it over and put icing on the top and all those little things that they like jam slice or whatever. So yeah, everyone grew up the same. I don't think it's quite as prevalent now as as what it used to be for sure. No. When you were growing up then talking about Finder's pancakes and stuff and I can relate to all of that, 
was mealtime still important in your family? Kind of brings people together, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, being at home with my dad, sadly, like he passed away when I was 11. So I don't remember much, really. I remember Sunday dinner because whenever the, the Olympics was on in Los Angeles, because I think it's about 88, maybe. <laughs> I, I seem to remember that. It might be 86. And we've got Julio playing in the background <laughs> and roast beef in front of the fire. And it just I can just remember it. that was a classic Sunday. But we got in from school early. Dad would arrive home later. So he'd get in after six, by which time we've eaten. It was Sunday when the family ate dinner together, whether that be mm-hmm. at my nan and granddad's or my grandma came down or we had it as a family listening to Julio or whatever you might remember. <laughs> but yeah, that's how mealtimes generally worked. Yeah, the same for me. My dad came in late. We had tea early and then um, Sunday was roast. And then every Saturday, my dad used to get up and play golf early in the morning and then he'd come back and cook a curry from scratch. So he used nice. to go down to Wilmslow Road and buy all the ingredients. And that was tradition in our house. And then as you grew up, you know, various boyfriends, girlfriends, mates used to hang together and, and we'd chew the fat and kind of discover our views on politics and stuff like that. Yeah. So some really great memories. And I do think we had Julio on as well. I'm sure we did. <laughs> Mum was a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the trigger that made you go from data manager to master chef? Tell me about that time in your life. I was always that person that sat watching MasterChef saying, why has he done that? That's shocking. That's rubbish. <laughs> or, or worse. It's just my time, I guess, to put my money where my big mouth was, so to speak. And I'd got him work one morning. I used to work over on Oxford Road there for a private university. And I was always in the office before seven. I opened my emails and I had an email from one of the bosses at the time, which really got up my nose. So I closed my emails and started looking on Facebook while I'm having my coffee coming round and the rest of it. And in the cookies there, ping... I'd just won it and it said, you can be the next champion, click here. So I, I clicked on it and, you know, if I'm dead honest, I applied honestly, but in temper because um, <laughs> my boss had really got on my nerves. <laughs> and then that was it. You know, there's a lot of other stages before you get onto the show, but that was the first step of my MasterChef journey. And what was it like when you won? How did that feel? It sounds really big headed this and it, I mean this to come across as sincerely as possible. By the time it got to the final, I knew I couldn't lose. Right. It was mine to throw away. One of the contestants even said to me on the way in, you could come in here and make a fucking bacon sandwich and you'll still win it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, that, excuse the language, but that's what he said. It felt great, but I expected to win it by that time. And that's the way I approach things anyway. I want to be the best at anything that I do. And if you're not doing it to be the best at it, then let someone else do it and do something that you're better at or work harder, one of the two. <laughs> so that's my mantra with it. But the funniest thing about winning is I won on the um, the 22nd of January. I think it was a Thursday. It's not shown on TV and it, it was the 24th of April. So there's a three-month gap. You get no media training. You go back to work. No one. I didn't tell anyone where I was. No, <laughs> no one knows where you've been. Life carries on as normal. Then all of a sudden... You're thrown into this media frenzy. Even back then, I was never great public speaking. It doesn't bother me at all now. I'll talk to a full football stadium. I couldn't care less. But at the time, it wasn't my forte. People that that work in data don't tend to talk very much. They just look at things (laughs) and then send them. That's that's the way it works. So it it took me a long time to get into that that rhythm of things. That was probably the biggest change to me personally, that after winning, that's a road that I found quite difficult. The food has always been more or less the easy bit. Um, mm. Everything that surrounds the show has always been difficult. Oh, it was. It's not It's not now. 
And so you probably had never even thought about that being an outcome, I suppose, of winning. No, not at all. You just think, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll win that. And then it's all on you. It's not like an Australian or American MasterChef. I've met both the winners of that working out in Dubai, not last year, the year before. You know, they get a quarter of a million dollars and they get a 10 book deal and all kinds of things. And, and you know, in the UK, you, you do it for love, not for money. You do it for mm. that trophy. Which is in itself a blessing and a curse when you want to come and work in the industry like I did because there are people and there still are people now that look at you and think you're just some show pony off the telly. You know, you're an amateur. Now, the accolades that I've got and the awards I've won state that I'm not, but every time that I think that, and I think that every time I walk into a kitchen, I've I've got to prove everybody wrong every single time. That's the people that work for me, the people that eat. You know, and it's 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 my my thing, but I I feel like I've got a point to prove to everyone, and that's what will see me achieve what I want to achieve. Yeah, I mean, you hear, don't you, a lot of people who are really successful in their lane, I suppose, in their niche, feeling like that imposter syndrome all the time. But I think it's what keeps you going, isn't it? It keeps you stop, you know, it stops you being complacent. Yeah, I mean, I've got high aspirations for what what I, what I want to achieve at this restaurant. I've made no secret of that. Um, I think we've made some mistakes along the way. We tried to be all things to all men. Um, that might have been an early conf- confidence issue that you didn't know you had, really. And it's be confident in you what you want to do. I've always wanted to be tasty menu only. I've always wanted to push Michelin and, and the AA guide and accolades as far as I can get. And I know where I'm at now. I've spent lockdown putting things in pots, in boxes, writing new menus, developing new menus, trying to source ingredients that are difficult to come by. And I'm ready to open with a whole new focus and drive to achieve Mm. something that, well, it is what I want to do and I think will be quite special. So after MasterChef, then you got what I would imagine to be the dream job for you. So you're a massive Oldham fan. And you got the job running the joint as executive chef at the football club. Is that actually one of the best things you've ever done? Was that like, did you feel that you'd actually made it at that point? Yeah, I mean, that was great. At the time, not too big a role, but it was a brand new business for us at the time. And I had some input. It allowed me to work with dietitians from Liverpool John Moore University, look at the players' diets, design the function offerings, the match day hospitality, the boardroom. It gave me the option to open up a pop-up restaurant to try and see and work on an a la carte basis rather than the mass dining that we was doing at the time. And it was a great period of my journey. I'm not there anymore. Myself and Oldham Athletic are on a break because I disagree <laughs> with the chairman's policies and I fundamentally will be on that break until he's gone, right. <laughs> for the record. <laughs> yes, you heard it here. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, it was great. Great times, great team there. Met some fantastic people and got to work in my football club you know, I cooked for some great people in that boardroom. It was uh, it was good fun. I really enjoyed it. It's like Tom Carriage over at United. When he rocked up in the boardroom there, that was just great. It just changed the whole experience for us, really. Yeah. It was fantastic. And obviously, he's loving it there. So what was the trigger then to set up your restaurant? So you've got Wood Manchester, and obviously then you've got Woodcraft in Cheltenham. So yeah. had that always been a dream to have your own place? I have to be like honest about where I've come from. And fundamentally now, I look where I'm going and, and not where I've been. But... To take a little step back, you're not ready to open a restaurant when you win MasterChef. You're not ready for much, to be fair. You've had a a few good rounds in a competition, cooking as a home cook, not a professional one. So you go and hone your skills, you do some stagiaires at different places. And I waited 
two years before setting foot near my own restaurant. And I did a pop-up one in between with, with a professional kitchen behind me. I worked match days. I wrote my book. I went and worked down at Marcus Waring for a little while. I went to Theo Randall. I went to Simon Rimmer's Greens restaurant over in Didsbury. And I got little bits of experience as well as teaching myself and having the time to hone my skills and my craft and get better at what I was doing. If I'd have opened this restaurant a week after winning MasterChef, we wouldn't be sitting there having this conversation now. I waited two years, and although I've referred to it earlier, we've made some mistakes along the way. Not mistakes, but we weren't true to our identity. Certainly I wasn't. With a theatre menu, with an a la carte menu, we did the tomahawk steaks, because you're trying to be all things to all. I'm concerned about being busy on a Tuesday night, not winning a Michelin star in four years' time. That was a mistake. Whether this venue's too big to do that might be the case. It might be that... We make this into a woodcraft like in Cheltenham and we we downsize somewhere locally in the future. Who knows? It's all pie in the sky. My team don't even know that. It's just what's going around in my crazy mind. So it's just little things that you chew over to get better. But fundamentally, I had to wait to open this restaurant. And even then it wasn't perfect, but I'm lucky I've got to open it again and get it three quarters right. And in a month's time, I get to open it for a third time. And make no mistake, I'm ready to open it and do it exactly as it needs to be done. And would you say that you talked before about it being a labour of love and the industry you're in takes so much graft, doesn't it, and commitment and long hours. It's not for the faint-hearted, is it? So what have you learned about yourself, I suppose, since you have set your restaurant up? I think like anyone in hospitality, I'm very agile. You have to adapt and fit your name, adapt, pivot retrain, reskip, whatever it is. And we adapt and we fix it and make sure people get the best out of a bad situation. And that's what hospitality is about. And delivering that without moaning, without compromise to the best of your ability, whether that's on the scale of mobilizing food across the region or just fixing that tiny problem on a Saturday night, you've got to adapt quickly and agilely, as, as I refer to, and we've done that all the way throughout. Mm. It's been good. It's been a challenge, but one that I've enjoyed. Because going back to over 12 months now, I mean, we got together, didn't we, with Sasha Lord and, and right, Karina, yeah. and we did, when we thought we could see what was happening, and we had launched Pay It Forward, so you buy vouchers now to spend later. But I think at that point, we all thought it was going to be about six weeks, didn't we? We had no idea what was yeah. coming at us. It's astonishing, really, that 12 months later, we're still sat here. I mean, all right, we're four days away from being open to a, to be able to open outside in Manchester. Mm. But we're not made for that mm. here at all, really. There's certain areas where it can be, and, it, and it's nice, and certain bigger corporate restaurants and chains have got more infrastructure around them or big investors that allow for that facility for a month so it is astonishing like I say that we're back 12 months later exactly 12 months down the line probably not far off to the week and we're still having conversations about how we're going to adapt again for the next five weeks before four weeks after that seeing June the 21st when hopefully we can open without any kind of restrictions. Can't even imagine what it's been like for you, but in terms of an industry that's been so badly battered and an industry that's also spent so much money in doing the right thing and creating safe spaces more so than possibly anywhere else, just to have been victim of the most ridiculous unscientific decisions around hospitality. Yeah. There must have been some dark times. I mean, how how have you dealt with that frustration and 
an injustice in a way. It's like a roller coaster up and down you go. One minute you're too busy with home deliveries, the next minute someone's complaining that you're using plastic pots and then you're looking at the government statistics about data, not dates, yet they won't produce any data. It's obvious for everyone to see that hospitality is a safe venue, that they're opening retail first. It was even more apparent that schools were passing the virus around more so than anywhere else. And yeah, hospitality, don't get me wrong, has its part to play in that. But we're more restricted than anybody else. And when you see that and you know it, and they put in stupid, like they eat out to help out and then complain that you've had too many people. It's, it's your idea, guys. We're, we're doing what you told us to do. Buy masks and visors that aren't right, and then they make you get new ones and adapt again with different rules. That's before we even get into extraction, air conditioning, mm. bars, pubs, restaurants, hotels, comedy venues, live music venues are all very, very different things. It's common sense. However many people fit in 42nd Street, a thousand is very different to the 40 people that I have per service in my restaurant that arrive no more than six people every 20 minutes and sit three metres apart. Yet we're all thrown into the same bucket because the government hasn't got, hasn't got a clue about hospitality. There's no one in there to advise or inform. You get angry along the way thinking about all these different things. I've done it now. It, like The more I talk about it, the, the more annoyed <laughs> I get. And you try and voice that opinion. But the way that I like dealt with it is, first of all, work hard and get on with it. Try and adapt and keep your business alive and keep the people that you've got working for you in jobs. We lost the Chester restaurant. We managed to keep hold of Manchester and Woodcraft in Cheltenham, which is great. So two out of three isn't bad, considering people have lost a lot more. But it gives me a broad understanding. And then ways of coping with it, I like a glass of wine, it's no mistake, a little bit of escapism, watching TV or whatever, but I've developed my new menu, I've enhanced and honed my vision for the future. I've tried to treat the pandemic as a positive, now that might sound quite crass or ironic or whatever word you want to put on it, but if I was open, running around with my backside on fire, I haven't got as much time to sit and really consider my menu, my approach my wine service, my apron style, like the cloths. the I've cut my working hours down for a better quality of life for my chefs so that we do a four-day week now. So three days off and then we're in for four days doing what we do best. So that's how I've dealt with things and frustrations by channeling any of that negative energy into something productive so that I can open and put it all behind me and be better than I was before. And that's not always been easy. There's been the odd outburst and I can be quite vocal on social media when I've lost my temper or you see things that are just just nonsense. And someone, like, there's a community that works together in Manchester. There's yourself, we talked about Karina, there's Sasha, there's Andy's and Andy's office. And I do believe that there's certain people have to say things in a certain way. And at the minute, I feel that I'm one of them people that can say it pretty much as it is. Mm. speaking as a, a Mancunian, not a politician, not an advisor, not anything else. Sometimes things just need to be said the way they need to be said. And whether that makes me feel better or it gets the point across to people that might or might not see it in a more direct way, um, and it might not always be courteous. It's, I, I, mean, I, I do try a bit more now than, than, than I was, <laughs> but sometimes it just needs doing. And it's frustrating. You've, I'm looking at the Roland Transfield way here that, that I've got and... <laughs> There's one thing that I keep looking at and it says 
no dickheads. Character <laughs> and talent will get you through the door, but integrity will keep you there. I think that should be applied in Parliament sometimes. <laughs> yes. God, absolutely. You sound like Gary Neville. I had a similar yeah. conversation with him. <laughs> He's also trigger happy on the on social media at times. Yeah. But it's important, isn't it? And it's a question I wanted to ask you. Um, I think in the past 12 months, we've seen people use the platform in a really positive way. I mean, we've seen some people who've not used it in a positive way, but there's definitely been that feeling about and a lot of greater Mancunians who have felt so passionate about injustice or so passionate about making sure that this wonderful city that is there for us. Yeah. What have you seen that's made you proud to be a Mancunian in that period of time? Because I think more than any other city, we've really, really mobilised, haven't we? Yeah, I think I've tried to do that with the scheme for the Feeding Families for 30, which went really well. I was proud of that. It, yeah. And it's not easy when you're writing recipes for someone that only has a kettle or yeah. they've only got a microwave and they've only got tin produce. There's all kinds of different things, but we looked at, you know, we worked hard doing that. And there's a month's worth of recipes now for everyone to use with all those obstacles in the way that they might have fuel poverty, food poverty. But working with Fair Share has been great. The guys at Wood Street Mission have been good. And there's Humans Manchester. Seeing all those people pull together to make sure people that got the food parcels from the government and things like that didn't go hungry. And watching hospitality like Andy over at eight days a week in Stockport and he's over at Hatch as well. You watched him... From his, he set up a brand new business in lockdown and then all of a sudden started giving it all away to feed people that couldn't eat. And we've all done that with food banks and things. We've all done a little bit in our own way, whether that be through donations. Stream GM is another one. You know, I was proud to be a part of that. That was great. I really enjoyed it. It was good fun. There's so many people that have chipped in and worked hard in so many different ways. But the way Manchester has stuck together in the only way that Manchester does, to be honest. I don't see that with any other city. And people there might argue, but if they do it, they don't do it as good as we do. <laughs> well said. You're a leader in your business. And one of our values is leaders create leaders. So what have you got in your team in terms of skill set that have been able to support you in that loneliness at times? I think... All the groundwork that you do with your team before something like this happens, that's being a leader all the time, not just when there's a crisis. That's the difference, isn't it? Because mm. if you lead properly, people will follow. Sometimes you have to be behind them pushing and sometimes you have to be dragging them from the front. It doesn't matter. Um, there's nothing within my restaurant that I can't or won't do. I can answer the phone, I can do the bookings, I can wash the pots, I can make every dish. I can run the service, I know the cleaning lady, I know the people that change the oil, the extraction. And it's about being, like you say, a leader and making sure everyone's got what they need to perform to the very best of their ability for you. They might be doing it for professional pride and for themselves, but the end goal there is it's, it's my neck on the line, isn't it? It's, mm. it's my name on the door, it's my ethos, it's my ambition, it's my dream. And if, if I can't do everything to fulfill that dream, how can I expect other people to do it? So it's a, I very much feel that all the legwork that's been done in the three years before the pandemic, opening the restaurant, working with people, working with them very closely, nurturing them, guiding them, being there for them when they're having difficult times, it all bears fruit when you need someone to lean on. And people, whether they're working on, on, on furlough or whatever it is, they're just saying, I can sit at home or I can come and sit there. 
if you need something doing, you tell me. Or I'm just going to come in anyway because I want to see how you're doing because I know that you're doing all this food and it can't be easy. So you see the qualities in, in the people that you put in the positions that they're in within the restaurant and watching them work for you despite things like... I mean, we all know that trunk and service charge is a big point in hospitality. It's whether it's whether you agree with it or not, um, I tend to stay as well away from it as possible. It drives me insane. But it's part of it. And when that's not included in the furlough, yet other industries and sectors, income like that is, hairdressers, taxi drivers, etc. it's very frustrating. So these guys are not only taking... It's not an 80% furlough pay with the no. tips that they earn as well. It's probably a 50% pay cut. Yet they're still coming in because they want the business to be there and to succeed and not to see you like absolutely up the wall, running around like a lunatic trying to get things done. So that that goes to show that they're driven by more than just finances. They're driven by career and passion and a sense of what's right. And that comes from the leader that's shown them what it takes to get to that position. Completely. And it's the sense of purpose, isn't it? And the culture and the values of the business that yeah. they're also there for. And it's interesting to say that in terms of your reset, that you've also looked at one of the big criticisms of the hospitality sector, isn't it? It's just a grueling working hours. So you're going to provide more balance for your team now, which is fantastic. Yeah, we did open. Originally, we were Tuesday through to Saturday, lunch and dinner. It goes against what I want to be and what I want to do. If you're churning food out at a rate of knots, you can open in that manner. We've gone down to Wednesday evening, Thursday evening, Friday and Saturday lunch and dinner. Um, so six services a week will refine the services. So less people, slightly higher spend because it's a better quality. What we're doing, we're eliminating lower end menus and things like that. And I'm doing exactly what I want to do. So financially, my business partner will kill me for saying that. But I'm, I'm looking at it from what will make me up there with the best in Manchester and that's one of the options that I need to exercise and, and do. And that's giving people that four-day week. You know, we'll be in at nine, we'll go home, we go home. It will be a tough four days. But then we've got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or the staff have in any case, unless we're doing any training to improve the restaurant on a, on a Tuesday. Now, they've got time to recuperate and recover. And then we'll go again, um, as we do. It's not quite the same being the leader of the business. You don't tend to no. get the same hours. <laughs> <more. laughs> No, it's very true. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, are there any other restaurants that are doing that or is that another first for wood? It's a first for wood. There are other restaurants that operate in the same manner, the same hours. A lot of high-end Michelin places will run service that way. And it might be that if we're busy enough, we introduce another lunchtime on a Wednesday. But as it stands, I'd rather have the busy restaurant full Wednesday night, Thursday night, and then a booming Friday and Saturday yeah. rather than dilute that coverage across the week and work everyone into the ground mm. because if you're opening at 12 o'clock you've got to be in the building at eight or before to do everything from scratch and then you hear well 12 one in the morning and it's it's too much you don't get the quality it's not fair it's not what's best for the business I'd rather mm. be excellent 100% of the time than be mediocre 80% of the time. Mm. And you've done so much. I mean, like you said before, you were the first out with home deliveries. You certainly seem to be the one that people were taking their lead from you. That's either brave or stupid, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was just so impressed. The thought as well is that a lot of people that I've spoken to, even in different sectors, sport, charity, have said that 
because of lockdown and because of that, like you say the way you've had to completely be versatile and agile, it's enabled them to engage with a, a wider and a different audience than they may have been exposed to before. So have you found that with all the additional ideas that you've had? Yeah, I mean, we've gone to national delivery from Woodcraft in Cheltenham as well. We did the Woodcraft Weekender. So you get your Saturday evening meal for two courses, full English for Sunday morning, and then two course roast beef Sunday lunch for Sunday afternoon for 50 quid a person. And we did that nationally, which worked really well. That's all your weekend in one hit. So that was quite good. But to be able to serve the country, if you like, and when you, it's quite humbling when you see people have ordered from Dundee right the way over to Southampton and then but then in the next breath you, you're getting up getting a complaint from Northern Ireland that they, I'm not delivering there so it's like <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best yeah <laughs> it's quite humbling when you see how far and wide people are, are getting your products we got phone calls from the states to say I, I live in Boston or whatever it was but my mum and dad still live in Cheshire can we send them one of your I want it as a surprise and you know st- things like that Brilliant. so yeah. the, the word did get far and wide that's for sure that's so fantastic. And so tell me what's happening now. So for next week, what are you going out with? How are you starting back up? We can't do tasting menu outside on First Street. Yeah. It's just not going to wash. <laughs> well, it probably would wash, but all away. So we thought, what can we do to get things moving? And this is what it's... A, there's a couple of points here. We've worked too hard for the past 12 months to keep this young restaurant afloat. We've still had rent to pay and leasing costs. So that's what the home delivery has done so far. It's also contributed to pension costs and NIC for staff that you still have to find to keep them on furlough, which I think is relatively unfair. But anyway, that's another point. Keeping it positive and moving into where we're going is working in a restaurant is, as you said, in hospitality, it's very difficult. It's long hours, you're on your feet, you've got to adapt quite quickly. We've not been able to do that for 12 months or very little periods within that time. So I can't do the tasting menu outside. What do I enjoy? I like tacos and tequila everyone knows my favorite dinner is a burger but there's already good burgers in Manchester Mm. so I didn't want to do that but I thought (laughs) tacos and tequila not that there isn't good tacos and tequila in Manchester it's different I can make my own hot sauce we can do some fermentation we can make things special in our own wood way but it fits the brief it'll work outside I've got a marquee being delivered as we speak Um, amazing so we're going to do tacos and tequila and my main reason behind that forget the finances it's because I want my team back together and I want them ticking over as a brigade or as a front of house team for a month moving and getting into the rhythm of service and hospitality so that I can open my restaurant with the fine dining Michelin focused aspect and do what I want to do to achieve success that I want um, but hit the ground running because we could stay shut for another month and carry on with the home delivery, which there isn't going to be a call for. Let's be honest, we have to be sensible. If you can go out, you're not going to eat in. Very few people will, in my opinion, in any case. So we thought we'd do this, get the team in. It'll just be a a bit of fun. It's something different. It's quite lighthearted. It's something that we can enjoy before the real pressure sets in. And every week, we'll start to teach the team the new dishes We'll have training sessions on the new processes we've got in place for the new menu. And they're in the building anyway. So there's different things that we can utilize the time when we're doing tacos and tequila to enhance the the future prospects of the restaurant. So it's it's a double-edged sword, really. Is everyone excited? Yeah, they are. I mean, I've got an all-team meeting today. I've got the chefs in today. Everyone's in. We're cleaning the kitchen again. We did it a couple of weeks ago, but I keep getting them in. We keep doing it. We're setting up for service in May. 
I mean, we'll have to do it again. Everything will have to be took down, washed and put back and we know it will, but it's to give that feeling of ownership and excitement to get back at doing what we're doing and also to brief them on the tacos and, and just to say, you know, thanks for sticking by us. And hopefully they'll say thank you for sticking by us too. Yeah, I can't imagine how everyone's feeling right now. And also I just think what's important to say on this podcast that make sure everyone tips really well. Yeah. Because a lot of people have lost out, as he's saying, a lot of money, haven't it's they? A, it's so. a big difference for the guys. And like you say, people can... I know I read that Simon over at Manor is going to put the prices up and change so there's no service charge, which I think is a really a really great move. And hopefully at some point we'll be in a position to do that here mm-hmm. as well. So it's something that my business partner and I have talked about about six weeks ago, but we didn't want to open with new prices. It didn't seem right for our model yeah. at the minute. But in time, it, it will be. And like you say, for the, for the meantime, just come in, respect your server. They look after you. They bring you beer at the end of the day, so it'll be nice to know. <laughs> no, which seems it's bizarre. That's actually going to happen. Someone's going to bring you a beer. I know, can't wait. <laughs> just in terms of legacy as well, I mean, we've talked about how important it is to put more in than you take out. And as a sector, you've really done that. The hospitality in cities, but certainly Manchester, creates part of the city's legacy, doesn't it? Because it creates those memories and those experiences and neighbourhoods and that kind of thing. How important do you think that, you know, well, we're known as a city of restaurants. So how important do you think our restaurants are to our personality as a city? I think they're absolutely crucial. I mean, it defines what the city is. Going to a gig, I know what I do before I go to a gig. I mean, I used to go for a couple of beers in Apotheca. I'd go over to Almost Famous and have a burger, and then I'd go over to the arena and watch Slipknot. And, that, <laughs> and that's... That, you know, Only Slipknot. No, no, other bands. Yeah, other bands as well. But there's different restaurants. We've got Adam at the French. We've got Simon at Manor. There's Doug over at James Martin. There was Aidan, who's over now in, in Hale. It doesn't just have to be the top end of restaurants. There's other great places to go to eat. It does define what you do. Tapas at uh, Ivuna is great. The guys there are lovely. Going down to Atlas Bar, you know, Elaine down there, you can have a great time. And I'm not just publicising the people that I've been in contact with throughout the industry. These are places that I went to anyway. You all have a set routine of where you go. People go to different bars. I'm going to go there and I'm going to have a gin and tonic. Then I'm going to go there and I'm going to have some Prosecco. Then I'm going to go here for a, a taco or a burger or whatever it might be, some pasta. And... It defines the city and everyone's got their own little definition, but as a whole, that's what makes Manchester. Yeah. Oh, you're making me really excited now. (laughs) (laughs) And to be able to go to a gig, I mean, can't wait for that. Brilliant. And that leads me into our quick fire round, actually. So three Mancunian chefs you'd like to invite round for dinner and why? I'd probably go with the three that I just mentioned because Mm. I've had some of my my favourite meals there. Or I've worked with them at different like fundraising events or festivals and things like that. I'd invite Simon from Manor because I think what he's doing there is brilliant. I had a great dinner there. Adam over at the French because we get on yeah. we get on very well. I've had a great dinner there as well a couple of times, <laughs> and I've worked with Adam over at Bolton Food and Drink Festival. And Doug from James Martin, the head chef there. I've done some work at colleges with Doug and James at Manchester College. Um, I got to ride in a tuk-tuk being driven by a hairy biker <laughs> with Doug once and it smelt like sick in the back for some reason, but it's very memorable. Um, so we've got a lot of common ground. We all we all like food. Um, we've all used each other's restaurants or we've worked together in, in one way or another. So I think we'll have a good topic of conversation. I think that's they're, they're the road I'd pick at the moment. 
Oh, I'd love to come to that dinner. There's a spare seat there. What do you order at the chippy? Oh, you see, it depends. <laughs> There's, it depends if I'm hungover or not. So if, if it's lunch <laughs> yeah. and I'm hungover, I will go for a muffin. It's not a balm. It's a muffin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, it yeah. is not a muffin. <laughs> <laughs> everyone everyone gets this wrong apart from me and people from Oldham. <laughs> so I'd get a muffin with a Holland's meat pie on it oh, yeah. and squash it down. And then I'd get a, gravy, a, a large gravy and pour that into the carton that the, the, the pie came in and then dip my muffin in my gravy. That's hangover, chippy, lunchtime that sounds food. sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then if it was evening, I'm, I'm kind of a bit like, I like fish and chips, um, mushy peas, only a small portion. I'm not bothered about the chips. No one needs to eat like mm. 700 grams of potato ever. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> so a few chips, but then I'll have a pot of curry sauce and a pot of gravy and some tartar sauce. So I oh, kind of God, like the tartar sauce. Yeah, I'm kind of dipping in and out of everything yeah. as I go along. <laughs> but I would go for a, for a, a battered fish, chips, and mushy peas. I've not heard of tartar sauce and curry and gravy. That's a good one. I love the fish hut on Liverpool Road. Yeah. So we, from work, used to go there and then take them into cask yeah, on a nice. Friday. That was a real treat. Lastly, who are your Manchester hospitality heroes? Oh, there's, there's so many throughout the past year. That's such a difficult question, you know. The guys over at Fairshare, I think, although not directly hospitality, it's very closely linked. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. Andy Burnham, I'm going to be honest, and Sasha. I know they're very different people, but and very different roles and objectives. But they've stood up for everything that most people believe in. Now you can you can challenge things in different ways, but at the end of the day, that ruling that Andy challenged and, and stood up against changed the way that every that CBLIS or whatever it was called mm. soon disappeared and furlough remained, and that was because of that challenge for the entire country, not just for Manchester. I think he's been in, engaging with his city and that Sasha as well as a voice throughout the entire hospitality industry and other sectors as well. You know, he's been great throughout throughout the pandemic. And I think it's generally, there's too many people to name from businesses that have just picked up the phone and said, you're right. You know, like Becky over at 20 Stories, Elena Atlas Bar, Jane... Uh, Ivuna, so many different people that have checked in, chatted, sent nice things over. The guys at Mare over in Liverpool sent me a, a great like gift box. I wasn't expecting. I've never been to the restaurant. They just said, we love what you're doing. Oh, Have a treat so on nice. us. It's not for reward or anything, but it, it's difficult to pick out one particular yeah. people because we're a collective yeah. and that's the way hospitality works. So I think it's the city as a whole, really, isn't it? If you want to pick anyone from like Mary Ellen to Adam, all the people that have done the different things to help support different sectors and help people struggling, more importantly, and people have struggled mentally, um, financially, fuel poverty, food poverty, anyone that's had a, a finger in that pie, for want of a better expression, deserves some recognition for what they've done. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Just lastly, what would you say to people listening to this podcast now about how they can support the hospitality sector going forward? What would you ask them to do other than tip generously? Yeah. I, I think I wouldn't even go as far as the tipping, you know. I think just come out, be respectful, enjoy what people are putting in front of you because we all see how quickly it can be taken away without without rationale and reason now. 
I think just come out, be nice. If you book a table, turn up. If you can't come, let us know. That's, I mean, that's fundamentally. It affects so much resource levels, stock levels, ingredients that you buy, your supply chain. Don't be one of them people that books five restaurants and sees how many drinks they've had and decides which one they're going to go to. Pay up front if you need to. It's not a big issue. How many other services? Probably restaurants and PR are probably the two things that you don't necessarily pay up front for. (laughs) (laughs) So not thought about it like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there is, like, everything else, gigs, flights, holidays, online clothes shopping, even online restaurant shopping, you don't pay when you've had it, you know. So if someone's got that as one of their processes, don't be grumpy about it. If you're going to go, what sort of difference does it make? Get your, get your wallet out. You've been saving up for a year now. Exactly. I just can't wait. So and thanks so much for joining me because I know how busy you are. And honestly, I can tell how excited everybody is right now for next week. And I hope it goes really well for you. But also thanks for just being an amazing leader and creating so much inspiration and I know how difficult it must have been but you've always had something new to do and I can tell how passionate you've been about getting back up and running again so thanks so much and good luck it's been a pleasure come down and have tacos tell everyone to come and have tacos and tequila I will be absolutely (laughs) there (laughs) thank you all right thank you very much Simon Wood helped to build this city by going from data to fine dining by building his palate on his nan's tripe and by keeping Manx going on tacos and tequila. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Johnson PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.